When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone, Gabby here. And I'm Brenna. And welcome to the Mystery of Everything podcast. Hello everyone, Gabby here. And I'm Brenna. And welcome back to the Mystery of Everything podcast. We took a little break. Well, I was I was out of town for two weeks because I'm She's living moving. her best life. Yeah, because I'll be moving there. So I, I went and I did Christmas with my in-laws and then we were like house hunting and all of that fun stuff. So we were recording remotely, which led to quality issues. But oh, it's I'm so back. bad. It's so hard for me to figure out. We will get there. Audio is but... always a little bit iffy. And then eventually you just got to spend like an insane amount of money for your audio to be I know. Decent. See, that's the thing is I'm not making... Um, I'm not making enough money to get the mic I need, but I, we, I will eventually in due time. Please stick with us. We love you. But yeah, once Brenna gets the mic she needs, like if you guys were here from History of Everything, you remember the old audio and how many it took us a while until Stephen literally went, OK, screw it and bought the roadcaster. And it's sad because I myself, I will not listen to a podcast if the audio is bad. And I know that's it's mean to say. But I won't do it. My favorite podcast, Morbid. I mean, this obviously our podcast is my favorite. <laughs> but my second favorite, Morbid. I love you guys so much. But you all know your first episodes, you know. Just, Not like just like our past two episodes. And that's the thing. They, they they understand. And even if there's less listeners for those, we fix the audio and we keep on trucking. And hopefully and we the audio get more. Stays but I hope everyone had a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. And I would say sorry for starting the new year off on such a disturbing note, but so many people were upset with me for not continuing my Deep Sea Accident series last week. So I'm here to give you exactly what you want. To quote my husband, after um, he read one of the uh, events that I was writing about, he said, I just read a description of that incident and it's making my skin crawl. So yeah, good luck. It's going to be horribly graphic. This is your warning. I'm scared. And when I say don't Google something, guys, I mean, do not Google it. I'm going to Google it. I know you're going to Google it. Everyone's going to Google it. But <laughs> this is for your health, your safety and your mental wealth, well-being. Don't Google it. When I say don't Google it. As long as this isn't about like uh, regular scuba diving. No, it's about saturation okay. diving. It's, it's about saturation diving. It's about the bends, the history of compression sickness. And then we just go into a lot of saturation diving accidents. And I don't know what saturation diving means, but I'm sure you will tell me. Oh, I, I lit. It took me so long to write. It was literally like Stephen's entire family was there. I should have been socializing, but I was writing and writing about disturbing stuff. I tried to eat, um, but it was right after I Googled and Reddit literally had all of the graphic images. (laughs) So I did not eat that day. (laughs) I was very disturbed, but there've been many horrific deep sea accidents over the years. However, one of the most infamous cases is of the Biford-Bifford dolphin accident that has been requested time and time again. So this episode is for everyone who immediately went, you better include the Biford dolphin disaster on every single post about the deep sea tragedy series that I made. Never I mean, like, it was it. everywhere. Go to the comments when I was talking about um, North Sea, like yeah. oil rigs. Everyone was like, I hope you included it. Like, hold on, guys, I'm getting to it. I got to paint a picture, you know? Yeah. You got to build up to it. Give them the old razzle dazzle. So first things first, we need to have a better understanding of some things like what is saturation diving? Well, saturation divers are deep sea divers. And guys, I'm going to go like really in depth because I was looking this up and I thought it was all so cool. And now I could probably be a... No, I can't. No, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot. The more I learned, the more I was like, absolutely not. But they're deep sea divers. Now, I'm not talking divers who go, you know, 
deep down, just regular divers in wetsuits and spend probably a few hours underwater. I'm talking about divers that basically have to live under the water. Well, they live in small pressure chambers and it takes them days to like be able to go like, you know, to a normal pressure to depressurize themselves because they need to get used to the pressure changes again. There are stories of men who have missed the birth of their child. They've missed miscarriages. They've missed death of parents because the amount of time, like the days it would take for them to be able to yeah, to get their change. Yeah, they would, they would have missed it anyway. Like they yeah. can't just come back up. Like once you're down there, you are stuck there until it's safe for you to come back up or else you'll go splat. I feel like the longest safety stop I've ever had to do is like five minutes. Five oh, they, to ten minutes, just vibing. There. It's on. It's based on depth. So the deeper you go, the longer it yeah. will take for you to like. Be I able only to went come down back. ninety feet, so I can't even imagine how far down they go for them to have to just chill for days under there. <laughs> we'll get into that. So, how does saturation diving work? Well, people who do this job are the men, and I say men, but you know, I'm sure there's some women. I haven't googled it. But I did read a very strong comment on an article about saturation diving that makes me think women would do it too. Women do it too. I haven't looked into it though. So if you're a female saturation diver, I think you're a freaking badass and um, email me because I have questions. (laughs) But uh, they connect the drill pipes deep in the ocean. It could be drill pipes. It could be they work for communication companies because internet cables run super deep. Um, There's a lot of jobs. But remember when we talked about oil rigs and people were confused about the ships and the semi-submersible oil rigs and how they function when they don't touch the floor? Well, the drill pipe goes down to the ocean floor and the people who weld and connect everything together are typically saturation divers. These divers work at a depth around 650 feet to 1,000 foot depths. Um, It could be less or, and I don't know if it could be more, but I'm pretty sure it's around this range. They're hired by oil companies or communication companies. Um, as I said before, the internet cables, they run through the ocean, the deep ocean along the ocean floor. And I guess if someone were to snip it, would we just lose communication? <laughs> There's satellites. Like, I don't, I don't understand. Shark bites through it. We're I don't think it. a shark can go down that deep because it is on the ocean oh, floor. Yeah. And I bet they make bank. I'm just saying. Like sharks don't have pressurized chambers to go to the ocean floor. <laughs> Um, so I was mind blown when I learned about saturation diving, when I learned about the internet cables. I love the ocean. I love learning about all the deep water shit that's happening down there. Um, and also saturation diving is super important to research that NASA does because they have the ability to help with training that astronauts might need because of the differences in pressure and the way saturation divers bodies react to changes in pressure. So I thought that was a cool tidbit. NASA literally studies saturation diving. The thing about saturation diving is that when a diver is at extreme depths, their bodies become fully saturated. And that means the gas that they breathe in like saturates their body completely. As long as the weight of the water above them keeps the gases compressed, the gas is dissolved by the tissues inside of the body until it is completely like in every tissue. It's it, it just They're saturated, you guys. That's where it gets its name. The process of a diver becoming fully saturated takes about 24 hours. And the major difference between saturation diving and recreational diving is that recreational divers don't typically dive long enough for their body to become fully saturated. That's why you probably need to stop a little. How do they not run out of oxygen? We'll get into that. It's the umbilical cord. I was like, wait, what? And the umbilical cord plays a huge role in some of these accidents that we're going to dive into. I'll, I'll explain the uh, umbilical cord Dive later. into? <laughs> oh, hey, <laughs> So if their bodies do become fully saturated, decompression sickness or the bends poses a large risk to the divers. For saturation divers, however, they have to stop multiple times on their ascent in order to lower their gas levels. And in some cases, this process can take weeks. The gas needs to diffuse out slowly because if a diver were to shoot to the surface, the gas would form bubbles and it would be as though millions of tiny explosives began to detonate inside of their body. The bends can be incredibly painful and debilitating. And according to the severity and the depth of which the diver was, it can be almost impossible to survive. An example that I found online said that diving to 250 feet for an hour 
would require a five-hour ascent to completely avoid the bends. So <clears throat> would hate to see it, couldn't do it, wouldn't be me. Um, I also think the bends and decompression sickness was really fascinating. So let's just take a quick look at that and then we'll go more into saturation diving. And then we'll go into incidents. Decompression sickness refers to injuries caused by a rapid decrease in pressure that surrounds an individual. This pressure can be either air or water. In our case with divers, we're looking at water, but it can also occur in unpressurized air travel. Remember earlier when we discussed that the change in pressure, if it happens too quickly, can cause millions of tiny bubbles in the body? <laughs> well, when this happens in decompression sickness, it can damage blood vessels and block normal blood flow, which was kind of like, and we'll get into this later, when they were trying to figure out what was causing it, that caused them to make like all sorts of assumptions that were always, they were so close every time, but they never really got it. And it was really, really sad because so many people died and they really died in like mining and bridge building accidents. And I'll Aww. list some of those too. So this illness was first observed in 1670 when Sir Robert Boyle placed a viper, and this is so disturbing, into an airtight chamber and then rapidly removed the air with a vacuum. He noted that the changes to the animal's body and his description, it was the first description of decompression sickness. Like he wrote about how it changed in shape and it got all like, it basically looked like it got, it, you know. Science is so fucked up. And I mean, I it's important. It's learning. But the way that scientists' minds work, especially through history, like now you're a little bit more chill because you have to be because you can't get away with as much. But <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What do you want to get away with? I'm just saying scientists do some fucked up shit throughout history in the name of science. Well, the interesting thing is, and I was going to, my next episode was going to be about um, Unit 731, I think. It was a unit where they did a lot of disturbing tests on humans. And then I was also going to go into World War II and the concentration camps and how a lot of medical procedures became used and a lot of parts of the body actually got learned about through horrible things. But then I thought, you know what? I just went into these disturbing disasters. I'm no, going to do something fun. something a little light. So I'm going to look at Thomas Edison and how he um, <clears throat> stole from people. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it's easier. And it's kind of like, it's kind of a conspiracy. But also, I just love, I love messy drama. So. Messy drama. And it's, it's very we messy. We should talk about how Avril Lavigne's not real one day. We should, but I not don't want to get sued. <laughs> oh, um, by what's the word I'm looking her for? Her replacement, her doppelganger. Allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, you gotta See, throw that in every always every sentence. And like, this is just my opinion. This is my opinion. There's no fact to this. <laughs> um, where was I? Oh, Robert Boyle. Right. So, interestingly enough, people have been diving for thousands of years. However, improved technology led to them diving deeper for longer periods of times in the 19th century. So this led to more and more illnesses and deaths caused by decompression sickness. So over the end of the 19th century and the 20th century, doctors, scientists, and workers of all types who were working underground, so it was mining or bridge building, had to work together to get to the cause of decompression sickness and find solutions to prevent it. So this illness can affect pilots, parachutists, miners, anyone who's exposed to rapid reductions in barometric pressure. And in the early 1800s in France, miners were kind of like the first people to start coming down with what we now know is decompression sickness. So in 1840, Charles Dean Triger was the first to utilize a pressurized chamber for working. He used compressed air to mine coal in the Loire Valley in France. He had a chamber called a caisson box with an open bottom that was lowered into the ground. And then they pumped compressed air into it, forcing the water down and out of the bottom. So in doing this, workers were able to dig below the water table and into stores of coal that may have been underwater, which was really, really smart. They're like, I want to get this coal. Let's build this box. Genius. I wouldn't have thought of it. So the chamber was accessed by an airlock at the top and the whole device was operated by a manually controlled system of inlet and outlet valves. However, this invention led to the first known injuries caused by compressed air. So this caisson box was used for approximately two weeks with miners working seven to 10 hour shifts each. Trigère would also enter the box between shifts to assess the box itself and the working conditions. However, he started experiencing temporary breathlessness, 
and he recorded two cases of mal de caisson. When he described it, he said it was uh, joint pain and soreness that appeared approximately half an hour after he resurfaced from the box. The body aches were treated by... <clears throat> Actually, take a guess, unless you read ahead. <laughs> Oh, I peaked. I peaked. Damn you. <laughs> I know. I hadn't read ahead until you said, unless you read ahead. And then my eyes went, shoo. They treated it with alcohol because, <laughs> of course, they would. And then they sent those workers right back to work. Like, hey, buddy, do a quick shot and then get your ass back down there. But it Eventually, helped. his invention expanded to a lot of friends. So people everywhere started using it. And Trujillo employed two physicians to look after the medical needs of his employees. He employed two doctors and they noted decompression sickness in many employees, with one of the doctors himself experiencing decompression sickness. So these physicians attributed the illness to the rate of decompression, which, yeah, but they mistakenly thought that it was the result of decreased oxygen circulation instead of, you know, the gas saturation. Yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. They thought that it was a result of the decrease in the partial pressure of oxygen experienced from returning to the surface, which resulted in congestion of blood vessels and meninges, which, you know, was the common finding in all of their autopsies. So I guess at this point, people were dying. That's kind of fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> but they were like, go down to the box and take your chances anyway. Oh, gosh. <clears throat> so fun fact, during construction of the St. Louis Bridge, once the caissons reached like 60 feet, men started getting decompression sickness. So they would emerge from the caissons in a bent over posture. And that's where it got the name yeah, The Bend. Yeah, I knew that. So there were so many incidents of bridge construction being severely affected by the sheer amount of people that got diagnosed with the bends while building them. And actually, I was reading about it earlier. It was like the Manhattan Bridge. People were getting so sick while they were building it that they just said, hey, we're not going to dig down anymore. We're just going to put it on a pylon. And it wasn't supposed to be on a pylon, but like, they couldn't do it because of decompression sickness. And I thought that was a cool fun fact. It didn't put that, it in here. Yeah, but. that was a cool fun fact. And I might have misremembered the bridge. It was like Brooklyn or Manhattan. I'm not from New York, but yeah. <laughs> um, there was so many incidents of bridge construction being severely affected by the sheer amount of people that got the bends. And it wasn't until a French physiologist by the name of Paul Burt discovered the root cause of the illness that proper treatments could be administered. He came up with the practices of slow decompression, oxygen administration, and recompression, which, oddly enough, are still the mainstays of treatment for decompression illness today. So then after Paul Burt, John Scott Haldane, a physiologist, invented the first decompression tables. He came up with a theory of tissue half times and a model in which workers can be decompressed safely. The technology that we use today is obviously a lot more advanced than what he came up with, but his tissue theory and his decompression model are still like the basis of what we do today. And it's such a pain in the ass to learn. <laughs> I had to use a little chart. Whenever you're diving, um, they have technology that does that for you now, like a little computer thing if you're fancy enough to afford one of the little computer things. But whenever you're getting certified to become a diver, they make you do all the math and stuff yourself, which is smart because it's necessary because you could die. So. It is necessary, but I do not like math, and it was a pain in my ass. And if you do the math wrong, <laughs> then you die. <laughs> don't die. That would, that would be... Um, mm, don't die. Not cool. No. You that know was the worst part of learning, because it was like a classroom. I had to sit in a classroom and watch videos and do math when I just wanted to be swimming around in the pool with my I wetsuit really on. I really want to do, like, submarine stuff. But I don't think I want to dive ever. I'm not, I'm not like a naked out swimming in the ocean with a shark type of gal. I'm more of like, I'll watch the shark through my metal box type of gal. I'm more of a voyeur than a... That makes me feel claustrophobic. Well, I've told you about that before, how I'd rather be outside. Like, let's say a murderer's coming in. I would rather be outside than inside the house because I feel like outside is safer. 
Yeah. You got more But I'm also freedom, not claustrophobic. More opportunities. So I love my little, I don't know. I love my little tight space. They make me feel safer. Like the less open space around me, the safer I feel. I think it's all about like know. personal It, it depends fears. on the situation. Maybe, maybe. Gabby also, is freezing me to death right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's not my fault. My nose is running. <laughs> I'm sorry. The electrical in the but, garage is not made for this. But do we sound good? We probably sound good. <laughs> if we don't sound good, then you're freezing we're to up. death for nothing. Like we when, don't sound good, we're giving up. <laughs> oh, we can't give up. I'm just kidding. I'll never give up. We've committed too much. No, I've made a blood oath. With who? <laughs> Am I part- Did you steal my blood? I'm just kidding. I would never do one of those. Well, I did one when I was younger. Not now. A blood oath? No, not like oaths, but you know, where you like cut your hand open and then your friend cuts their hand open and then you put your cuts together and you're like, oh, we're blood sisters now. We have had such different childhoods that every time you tell a story, I'm like, I wish I could relate. Now that I work in a lab, you could not pay me to do that. Blood scares me so bad. Oh my gosh. Okay. So after um, blood oaths, back to saturation diet. I don't even know how we got where we got. I don't know either, but it was a good place to get to. Question. All in good fun. Okay. So... Saturation divers. An interesting thing about them is they can't breathe air because this becomes toxic at the insane depths that they are. The nitrogen in air can lead to nitrogen narcosis, which is essentially being drunk without the alcohol. And honestly, what is the point of being drunk without a fun, fancy little cocktail? That is so scary, too. I don't know if this is the same thing, but does it apply to like flying in planes and shit? I don't know. I've only looked up... um, the underwater part. <laughs> I could be completely wrong right now, but I feel like scientifically it could be the reverse. But I know that at a certain height, pilots have to. Oh, they do put on those, dizzy, little, I'm those sure. little masks. Or if there's a crack, let's say there's a little leak in the compartment and you're a pilot, then if you don't get your mask on in time before you realize that something's wrong, you just start giggling and shit. <laughs> But it's sad. This is your you, captain speaking, LOL. But you're giggling to your death because you're not <laughs> you're not with it enough to know I need to be flying this plane or anything of the sort. So you're literally losing your marbles like you're drunk. And then your plane could be in a fucking nosedive. And this has happened a few times, which we should make this an episode. There have been a few instances where luckily the pilot came to because once you get down a certain depth, you should, in theory, come to again. Yeah. Let's hope you have enough time once you come to to be like, oh, fuck, I'm wrecking a plane right now. Because a lot of times they don't come to and they die. Um, my brother's a pilot. It's, it's so fucking scary. So scary. There's, just keep the mask on just, just the whole it, time just stay strapped i'm not taking any chances <laughs> literally that would probably be me but the deeper you go the drunker and more incapacitated drivers divers become and beyond 200 feet divers breathing in air can become disoriented and at 300 feet they typically black out they have to breathe in a mix of oxygen and helium which is called heliox with small amounts of nitrogen and the small amounts of nitrogen is used to prevent the divers from getting tremors that heliox can cause So the whole thing is just dicey. Like you have to have all of these in very specific amounts because too much nitrogen, you're drunk. Too little nitrogen, you're shaking. Oh, I just, bless their hearts. They, I Googled it. I think they got paid like 1500 a day. And I was like, you need to double it. Yeah, they get paid bank, but it's still not enough. 1500 a day. I'm sorry. Once we get into this, do risks and living conditions. They got to double it, like 3000 minimum per day. I, like, I thought they made more than that. Because I know underwater bad. welders make a little pretty penny. Well, I Googled it. Um, it was the average pay, and that has a lot of factors based on yeah. the companies you work for. And the companies are they allegedly, allegedly are sleazy. And one of the cases that I talk about, because you know how companies own companies own companies. Yeah. It so then they would back to one person. None of them would claim the workers. Oh. Yeah. It was super messed up. I was, oh, I was, I was seething. What is with these sleazeball um, companies? So I don't know what I was talking about. 
<laughs> because I got so mad talking about uh, the We company. were talking about uh, <laughs> but, um, trimmers. Yeah, essentially, <laughs> I don't I don't know how I feel about some of these conditions. Basically, they should be paid a lot more. And also, they only work in 28 days. I think 28 days of they the industry to, max. Because it's so hard on their body, right? So, and then they have to take time off. So I think it's like you work on and then you work the same shift off. But they should be paid way more because <laughs> what it totals up to, I'm like, no, they need more money. Than I heard a story about the underwater welders at, um, what's the like in Kentucky, like Cumberland? The one that has the dam. All those lakes in Kentucky are <laughs> artificial lakes. You all understand, not you all, the you all that is from the region we're in, in Kentucky. I think it's like Cumberland. With Harrington? The- Mm, Cumberland is a big one. I think it's Cumberland. Near with Tennessee. A, with the one that has a big dam because there were welders that had to go under there and the catfish, which my dad always told me stories about the lake. They're pretty big. Yeah. He's like, they're big enough to eat you. Are they? Yeah. They're big enough to eat you, but they hang out by the dam and they're so fat and lazy that they just lay there. And when the water flows through, fish flow through and they flow into their mouths. Oh, so they're just... Fish- they're just, Ladders. Yeah, they're just fat and lazy. And that's why you're not going to get eight by one at the top of the water soon in the lake because they're fat and lazy. But I've heard that the welders that work on that dam have seen some shit. And like once you go down once, you never want to go down again. I believe that. There's never anything good underwater. Um, I, that far? No. We're, we're off on tangents. I'm going to get into desaturation diving, I promise. But... This lady went missing in like 2015 or something. And they just found her in Florida in a lake. I guess she took the off-ramp turn way too quickly and drove into the lake. And people were looking for her forever. She had just returned from a date. People thought it was her poor date. Did they not trace her driving route? 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 Yeah, but I guess they just don't search lakes. So again, nothing good is in water. Let's stay out of it. And also water. the ocean seems pretty mad at us. I was watching TikToks on the nine month cruise and they were getting slammed by a storm. Like stay out of the ocean, guys. It's not safe right now. She doesn't want us there. For so, good reason. Anyway, at the depths these divers work, the water is super cold. So temps are around zero to three degrees Celsius, which is 32 to 37 degrees Fahrenheit. So in order for divers to work at these temperatures, they wear hot water suits. Hot water suits are essentially wetsuits that have tubes that circulate hot water around the suit to keep the divers warm or they can die of oh, hypothermia. That sounds nice. Not dying of hypothermia, but like the a water suit or water's just shooting I around. I need that for winter. But like anytime I would get cold in my wetsuit, I would just piss myself. You, you, they have to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. You just pee because wetsuits, the way that they work is they keep, like they fill up with water. But then your body heat heats the little layer of water that's inside of your wetsuit. So that's what's keeping you warm for the most part. And then, of course, if you pee in it, it's gross, but your pee is warm. So you're just vibing with your warm pee while you're underwater. Thanks for sharing, (laughs) And then when you get out, you take your wetsuit off and all your urine comes out. The more you know. I love that. They also have to pee in their suits because I guess there's no bathrooms when they're on the job site. Oh, yeah. Also, the bathrooms, guys, I'm going to get into the bathrooms. It is. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So for dives such as these, divers spend days or weeks in pressurized chambers. The maximum amount of time the industry allows them to work a job is 28 days. They enter the dive vessel through a small room known as the wet pot, and it's used to access the diving bell, which is the thing that goes underwater. And this wet pot is also the bathroom. So the more you know, and I'll have like pictures and diagrams of this up on Instagram. I haven't been super great with uploading, but I will upload this because you have to really be able to picture it. Another hatch in this wet pot leads to the living space and divers spend 16 hours a day in their living quarters because they only work for eight, which is essentially an isolated chamber where they eat and sleep. And for divers, that would be so boring. Yeah. So it's just like a little room and it can probably have like a chair and then there's bunks and I'll describe it in greater detail further on. But it's not. um, That sounds like hell. My mind would run so wild. And keep in mind the pressure that these guys are just chilling in this chamber, like the pressure that they're like at is okay. At 250 feet, which is not even 
the average zone for their work. They would reside in a chamber with pressures over 110 PSI. So for reference, inside a bike tire is 65 PSI, and at sea level, the pressure is 14.7 PSI. So they're just straight chilling um, like that. That sounds terrible. That has to be so hard on their bodies. That's not even the worst part that's hard on their bodies. I keep saying that, but you guys, we're going to get into it. The living space has an area that is literally just a table with some chairs, and the sleeping area has bunked beds. Depending on the type of dive vessel, these chambers may be cramped. So they actually have like draw straws in like other parts of the world. They just draw straws to see who gets the shitty bunks. And then in America, like American divers usually go on seniority, which I think is way cooler because you'll have it. But you won't be like this older guy who's been doing the job for 12 years, sleeping in this smallest Sleeping in bunk. a little cramped space. So I'm kind of, I don't usually side with the Americans, but they have a point and um, they're doing it the right way. Sorry. Um, they work for eight hours in another chamber, which is called the diving bell. And divers transfer from the wet pot through a hatch in the ceiling to get into this diving bell. That's important also. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hello, everyone. It's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The use transfer under pressure, like they use transfer under pressure, which is a process to kind of like explain it. Both areas are sealed and then they disconnect. If seals between, you know, the diving bell and the living chamber are broken or made under the amount of pressure that they're at, there's always like a risk of a mishap leading to explosive decompression. An incident like this- Explosive what? Explosive decompression. It's when they lose like the pressure at a rapid rate, just like immediately. And it causes them to- the, um... The disaster that everyone wanted me to talk about, that was explosive decompression. No, not not the dolphin thing. The, The submersible. Yeah, that too. Okay. Yep. Um, It's not very pleasant. So an incident like involving explosive decompression happened in 1983 when a dive bell was detached from the transfer hatch before it was completely sealed, aka the Biford Dolphin incident that all of this is building up to. So the diving bell is shaped like an egg and it is about the size of a small shower stall. It has an identical pressure of the living chambers and it's lowered to the sea floor using a tube called an umbilical, while a tube from the surface provides breathable gas to the diver. And there's also like the lift cable. So there's like an umbilical, which has like every important wire. And like, basically it's their life source. And then there's a lift cable that kind of like moves the whole thing up and down. Keep that in mind. How scary would it be if something happened to the umbilical, the little tube that goes to the air? You remember how we're going into disasters after this? Oh, no. I'm so sorry. No part of my mind. No. (laughs) So typically, um, you know, the umbilical, it provides breathable gas. It provides... heat it provides electricity it provides communication it provides like location like that's how they'll be detected if they get lost underwater somehow if the lift cable detaches and they just go whoop 
there's a lot. <laughs> so typically one diver stays in the bell to monitor the conditions to make sure, you know, nothing goes whoop. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I like what you did there. Um, and the other diver puts on a helmet and he gets his butt out there to work. The entire time they work, if they need to pee, they just do it in the suit. Yep. Depression, and oxygen and temperatures are monitored by an entire team of people to make sure like each diver is safe. There are subsea managers, dive supervisors, life support supervisors, life support technicians, and assistant life support technicians. They control what divers breathe, eat, and even help remotely flush the toilet. Guys, flushing this freaking toilet, <laughs> it was stressing me out. I would just never go to the bathroom. I'd just hold it for two weeks. <laughs> it's terrible. So, <clears throat> sorry, my throat is like, it's so cold in here, I cannot... And I just made a weird noise. I tried moving away from the mic when I did it, but it was a yawn that turned into a half burp. So I hope you all didn't hear it. <laughs> no, gross. <laughs> so before diving, divers must pass a medical examination. An illness, even as small as a cold, can cause career ending damage to a diver. No, you can't do that. Even on tiny dives, if you've had a cold, you have to be able to equalize or to like hold your nose, pop your ears, that yep. sort of thing. So if you cannot equalize, I mean, you can't go down. Also, it's I was thinking thing. of like appendicitis. <laughs> By the time you get back up to perform surgery, you're you're dead. Let's say you've got a cavity or something. You have an air pocket in your tooth. Oh. And you don't know. Yeah, that's a big thing, too. You got to make sure you don't have no cavities. My mom tried to dive one time and she had a slight cold and she couldn't because she couldn't equalize. She got down to a certain depth and was like, oh, OK, well, I can't do that. So she had to go back up. But let's say hypothetically, you got a little bit of air trapped in your tooth that you don't know about. When you go down, the air in your tooth will expand. What do you think is going to happen to your tooth? Boom. Kabam! Your tooth is going to explode. This sounds so fun. It's just something to think about. <laughs> so, <laughs> One as, of the fears I've had when diving. As Bren said, clogged ears and sinuses trap air that the divers won't be able to equalize. <laughs> also, remember how Heliox is breathed in by the divers? Well, the entire time they're breathing that in, they sound exactly how you would expect someone breathing in helium to sound. <laughs> Very freaking weird. <laughs> divers typically can understand each other, but sometimes if divers have different accents, it gets tricky. During the blowdown where the chamber gets to pressure, essentially, the chamber becomes very hot and humid. And sometimes this blowdown needs to actually be paused so that the climate control can catch up because it is uncomfortably warm. The chamber usually has to stay at around 90 degrees Fahrenheit because the helium leaves the Divers feeling like super cold. Oh. So like they're breathing this in. They're freaking freezing down there. So they have to keep Aww. it at a comfortable 90. <laughs> Blowdown can take hours and divers feel achy during it and after it due to the cartilage in their joints shrinking because of its porosity. So divers in the chamber get food and any gear that they need transferred to them through airlocks. So it's typically they'll like go down on their dives. They'll take like the yeah. essentials, maybe like some family photos game systems, you know, just stuff to entertain themselves. And then anything else that they might need, like extra work tools, food, it all just comes in through like little airlocks. They receive menus with meal options and then meals are passed to them through the airlocks, which I thought was really cool. They have like chef on staff on the oil rigs to just kind of like make them a meal. And it's cool, but it's also terrifying because what if you get stuck down there and you're like, oh, well, let me just eat this Xbox. Like what? Well, did, remember the chamber is kind of like up. It's not all on the ocean floor. The diving bell takes them to the ocean floor. So I'm sure they'll be fine. They won't eat the axe. Unless people forget about them in there. But that is, I don't think that Someone can happen. Someone could eventually find them. I don't think that can happen. Because remember, they have communication so, devices. They have whole teams. We've learned that communication devices can go haywire. I mean, true. I, I, I feel like they'd, they'd be The high. year of 2023 taught us. <laughs> never take an Xbox controller into the ocean. I'm sorry. Damn. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's not funny at all. Damn. I'm just <laughs> giving her a judgmental joke. look right now. <laughs> that was a bad joke on my part, but I had to do it. An opportunity was there. But they won't, they won't eat the Xbox. If anything, they'd probably eat whoever dies first, which is like the natural order of things. Yeah. That's what we do. So remember the toilet in the wet pot? 
Well, yes. Disgusting. At the pressure that divers live in, like at in the chamber, it's super difficult to flush it safely. The toilet must be filled halfway with water before use. And after use, they request a flush. And then a technician opens a valve on the surface, which allows them to operate two valves, which have to be opened in a specific order to empty the toilet into the holding tank and then empty the tank into the ship's wastewater system. So not only are you going to have to go poop with lots of people around you, which in basically the entryway and exit of this entire chamber, but also every single time you go poop, <laughs> you got to be like, hey... He it happened toilet. again. <laughs> also, or what if it smells really bad and you're in such a tight, compacted space with people? What if you throw well, up? That's not the worst part. So they make it super complicated. And the, <laughs> the thing that I was reading, the article says that there is a legend. Now, this is allegedly it is a legend. It is a conspiracy. They're, they have no proof for it. They can find any. But there's a story that one diver got his um, butt. It created like a airlock seal to the toilet before um, while he was sitting on it when he flushed and you could just imagine the pain so I won't describe any more of that to you but it ripped his asshole out I bet but (laughs) damn (laughs) that's why it's so complex to do the flushing guys I won't ask Gabby because I know she hasn't but if you all have seen the movie Soul Plane is it Kevin Hart I think it's Kevin Hart but when his butt gets suction cupped to the seat in the plane and then, I don't know, something messes up. And then he sees his little tiny dog uh, gets chopped up into pieces in the um, little spinny things on the side what of the What are you watching? So plain. His butt gets stuck to the toilet. That's where I was going. But while he's on the toilet and he's stuck to it, he's looking out the window because he's like, help me. Tom Cruise, Oprah Winifrey. And then he sees his little tiny dog go, and gets chopped up. But then... Where's this going? He gets paid out a lot of money, and he opens his own airline, and it's a happy ending. Snoop Dogg's the pilot. The dog died. How is it a happy ending? It's obviously fake. It's a happy ending because he opens his own airline. Yay, where dogs don't die. Where dogs don't die. That was his slogan. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Allegedly. Okay. I can go on for days about the day-to-day life of saturation divers because it's fascinating, guys. But um, the amount of payment that they get is well-earned. Well-earned. And they should be paid more. They absolutely put their lives at risk for this job. And now we get into the high-risk part of this high-risk, high-reward job. And we're going to start with the Byford Dolphin accident. How have I never heard of this? I don't know. Everyone, it's all the buzz and I know nothing. I know. Also, I have a very, I have to describe this picture to you. And then I'll also have it uploaded to Instagram when the episode goes up, just so that you guys can just go there and kind of picture what this the chamber setup of the Byford oil rig was. Essentially, they had a chamber two that housed two divers connected to a chamber one that housed another two divers. And obviously at the bottom of each living chamber was the attachment for the diving bell, essentially. Like they go into chamber one and the diving bell where it attaches with the airlocks, that is essentially the point of disaster for the Byford dolphin accident. So as we mentioned earlier in the episode, The four divers involved in this incident were returning from a dive when the incident happened. They were working aboard a Norwegian-operated oil rig called the Bifer Dolphin. And upon returning to their living chambers, the two living chambers on this rig, they each held two divers, as I said. And um, make sure to check out that graphic because it's super important. I didn't know that they had an escape capsule. Well, each... So diving, each diving bell and each living chambers, they all come equipped with different things based on who builds them. And they all have different safety features, which obviously you're going to need. Yeah. So. So also, as someone who had never heard of this before, I thought this um, included dolphins. (laughs) (laughs) You thought the dolphins were diving. No, I was like, I don't know how dolphins are going to play into this accident, but I'm here for it. (laughs) 
And then you were just like, oh, this is what the rig's called. And I was like, damn. Oh, <laughs> I'm not even going to make fun of you because when everyone was like spamming me with it and I looked it up, I was like, the lack of dolphins makes me happy because no dolphins were yeah, harmed. No dolphins but were harmed. But makes me sad because I it would have been way more interesting and less Dolphins hopefully. can be malicious. They can be. They, they can like be. to bleep. Yeah, they do. They do. They're a little bit, they're a little bit froggy. I use that term way too much now. Thanks. I, oh, this is a heartwarming moment for me because I taught Gabby the term froggy. Yeah. Yeah, you did. <laughs> if you're feeling froggy, jump. So my mom used to say whenever I would get a little bit too sassy and she's like, you want me to pop you in the fucking mouth? But instead of saying that, she'd say, you feeling froggy, jump. Which was like, all right, I'm going to lay off. <laughs> so this incident happened on November 5th. 1983 and the events of it are not absolutely clear like the events leading up to it it is assumed that a combination of faulty equipment as well as human error led to the accident the accident led to many new protocols and safety measures being put into place to prevent something like this from ever happening again as we said in the previous episodes unfortunately in many industries new safety measures and rules are only put into place after a disaster has struck to highlight the deficiencies in safety. Now, a diving tender is going to be super important to this. This is a worker that unspools and retracts the umbilical cord, which is the line of tubes that connects divers to the surface. This umbilical cord contains air supply tubes and communication wires. And back in the day around when this disaster happened, Tenders also had to dock the diving bell to the pressurized living chamber. So they had all of their responsibility. Like imagine being one guy. You're just some guy. And they're like, keep these men alive by no. yourself. Well, I think they had partners, but still. It's too much. It's too, too much. Too much for anybody. You couldn't pay me enough to do that. So the tender involved in this accident was named William Crammond. And he was experienced. Like this wasn't a new guy. It wasn't just some newbie trying it out like this guy knew what he was doing so is the tender up top or is he down below with the with everybody he's down below okay he, because according to what happens in here he has to be down below so on the day this okay. occurred Kramen had connected the diving bell to the living chambers and safely deposited a pair of divers in chamber one while two other divers were already in chamber two the process of connecting and sealing the pressurized chambers to the diving bell was the very important event that went horribly wrong. Typically, the diving bell wouldn't be detached from the living chamber unless until the chamber doors were completely sealed. However, in this instance, the diving bell was detached before the chamber doors were properly closed. And this led to immediate explosive decompression. Aww. So back in the day, they didn't have like, safety features to make sure like one couldn't detach unless one was sealed. Yeah. Which I feel like that should be a thing. I'm now. no engineer. But that would be just like, yeah. Oh, we need to make sure they can't accidentally something go wrong, have Ooh. a backup. I don't know. I just people who did dangerous jobs before they worked out the kinks in dangerous jobs. Bless them. Wow. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, with explosive decompression, what this means is that when the diving bell detached, the air pressure inside the living quarters immediately went from nine atmospheres to one atmosphere. The explosive rush of air out of the chamber shot the diving bell back, throwing it, which killed Kramen and critically injured his partner, Martin Saunders. 
However, the divers inside of the living quarters faced a far worse fate. So remember how we said that the air in their blood and tissues essentially formed tiny little gas bubbles or like tiny bombs? Well, three of the men in the chamber, Edwin Arthur Coward, Roy P. Lucas, and Bjorn Schaefer Bergerson, were pretty much boiled from the inside when the nitrogen in their blood erupted into the gas bubbles and they died instantly. I think theirs was a lot better than the fourth diver, though. Um, his name was Charles Helevik, and he faced the worst death out of them all. So this diver was standing the closest to the door of the living chamber when the pressure released. This caused him to be sucked out of a six centimeter <gasps> hole. And the opening was so... A 60 centimeter hole, sorry. Big difference. Still. And the opening was so narrow that it tore him open and ejected his internal organs onto the deck. So guys, I told myself I wasn't going to look up pictures of his remains, um, but I did. And he was essentially fragmented, for lack of a better word. I'm not including that photo here or anywhere for you all because it's not community guidelines appropriate and it's 100% just gore. But if you're like me and you let curiosity get the best of you, it's an easy goop. Oh, my God. However, in this instance, I can 100% say it is not worth a goop. I googed it just now. Why? I said, said it's said, not worth a goop. I already had it pulled up when you said it's not worth a goop. Is that his eyeball? I don't know what I was looking at, but I was eating and I went, no more. <laughs> Oh my, don't goog it. It's very disturbing, you guys. And I just, reading about this, I feel so bad for them because obviously nowadays we have safety stuff in place to prevent it. That, you know, hindsight is 2020 should have been there. It was just really, it's really disturbing. It is really disturbing. So that is the Biford Dolphin accident. Um, up next, because... There were so many more. Like there was a list, a really long list. And I just picked some that I thought were interesting. Up next, we have the Wildrake diving accident. So in, this one happened in 1979 where, remember that lift wire? Remember I said it was like an umbilical with all the important shit and a yes. lift wire. I'm so sorry. I was still looking at those photos. And, oh, oh my Gabby. It was all over the deck. You don't want to, you don't want to. That's not something you want to look at. All I can make out is a hand. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. It wasn't good. It wasn't okay, good. Okay, continue. Whew. So remember I said the diving bell has the umbilical with all the important shit and then the lift wire, which moves it up yes. and down and keeps it attached. Yeah. Well, um, this separated from the diving bell during a dive. So two divers, Richard Walker and Victor Guil, were working on a dive at 485 feet. So not the deepest. But the interesting thing is that as the bell was being lowered, their transponder, essentially, which would kind of give everyone their location. Yeah. It came loose and the foreman was ordered to just, he just cut it off, you know. So once lowered, as the man worked, Walker noticed that the bell had become separated from its lift wire and was just hanging, like it was just hanging there, like by the life support umbilical cord. Um, no. Yeah. So basically, the only thing that was connecting it to the surface was what the they used yeah. to breathe. Yeah, the cable's literally responsible for keeping them alive. So Walker and Guil reported what was happening, got into the diving bell, secured it shut. And the dive superintendents and supervisors, hearing what had happened, decided, hey, you know what we should do to no. get them back up? Well, that umbilical cord, it would be a great secondary means of recovery. Um, it was not. They said that, oh, yeah, it was designed by the company to be a secondary means of recovery. We could totally pull them up. And then the company came forward and was like, absolutely not. Where did you get this information? That was not it's not a secondary recovery. Anyway, but this is what this is the plan they had. And this is the plan they went forward with. So when they attempted to raise the bell with the umbilical cord, which keep in mind, it was already damaged. Like they cut a cable earlier too. the umbilical became jammed and attempts to raise the bell using it damaged it even more. The power and the hot water to this bell were cut off. So basically they have no heat. They're going to be freezing down there. Now a diving vessel called the Stena Welder, it came over to attempt to help rescue divers. They were going to take a crane hook down to attach it to the bell. 
However, because the damaged diving bell was lowered. So when they were rescuing it before, they yeah. lowered it. So now it's not even where it's supposed to be. So when they um, tried to do the stuff with the umbilical cord, they just, I guess they dropped it. They said, fuck you. Anyway, they lowered it more. Keep in mind also, there's no transponder anymore. No. So um, the rescue divers go in. They're trying to attach this crane hook. However, because the damaged diving bell was lowered after the previous rescue attempts, as well as because the transponder wasn't attached, it took the rescue divers almost an hour to locate the bell. So once the rescue wire was attached, though, they just attempted to lift the bell, but they did it at a 45 degree angle rather than vertically. And they did not wait for confirmation that the bell was ready to be lifted. So as they attempted to lift it, the wire broke and the bell was again lost. So these initial rescue divers who were at this point exhausted because it took them so long to do this, they reported that Walker and Griel looked near death. And then they had to like go back and swap out with a new set of divers with more energy who can get this done. So these new divers, they were successful at attaching the crane to the bell. But unfortunately, it took so long that when the bell was retrieved, um, Walker and Griel were pronounced dead. And the autopsies determined that they died of hypothermia. So that story, I think, was terrible. Like, obviously, by for a dolphin accident, horrible. But this one is so much gross negligence. Like, genuinely could have all been avoided. And obviously, I'm not comparing the two, but like instant death versus freezing to death. Yeah, like they were in there. They were like banging on the windows. They're moving around. Like they knew what was happening. They called for help. They did everything right. They called for help. Genuinely, they could have been rescued. If other people wouldn't have fucked up. And then the worst part, and this this is the this is the incident that it I was talking about worse. earlier, where I was so like I was shaking it, like I was so upset. Um, if you look into the court rulings afterward, the lack of accountability and care that the companies had for the human lives, um, it will fill you with rage because one of the things that got, you know, just just look it up. I'm not gonna get into that here, but just look it up. It was terrible, you guys. Terrible. I was like, oh my God. Okay, I'm good. I'm just gonna <sighs> breathe it out. <laughs> Deep breaths. I just feel like they're doing a super dangerous job. And then they were like, ah, oh, screw it. <laughs> Awful stuff. But anyway, the next incident happened in 1974 in Norway. So two divers, Skipneys and Smooth, were inside a diving bell that was down 321 feet. The drop weight on the bell malfunctioned. So it was released. So basically they have like these little drop weights and there's also safety features on the drop weights that kind of like either keep it in position or they can use it to move it up or down or they're kind of like an emergency. There's a lot of built-in emergency um, protocols, I guess, that go with it. Um, So the drop weight on their bell malfunctioned. So it was released. However, this caused the diving bell to shoot up to the surface. But that wasn't All that happened and due to outdated instructions that did not reflect updates to the diving bell. So they were constantly updating this. What I've learned is before some of these accidents, they would always make like a few changes to the diving bell and like the drop weight and valves. And these people didn't update their instructions, essentially. I feel like that's something that's rather important. So a valve was not in the proper position during the dive. And it meant that the bottom of the diving bell was completely open as it shot to the surface. So that meant that the pressure in the bell not only like changed rapidly, which caused them to die of decompression sickness, but also they died of drowning. So just horrific. Absolutely. I hope they were passed out. Horrific. I, I don't even want to think about it. These were so gory. I don't even put all of them in here. It was a long list, but I was like, I feel like the listeners don't deserve that much. You listeners that asked for this, what's wrong with you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Morbid curiosity. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. It is interesting, albeit very terrifying. Oh, yeah. I just, when I write, I usually kind of like imagine what is happening that I'm writing about. So, I went on an imagination whirlwind. No, I can't let myself imagine this. And so I went to go to bed that night and every time I closed my eyes, I was like, ah! It wasn't, it wasn't a good time. So the wage three drilling accident is another accident that happened in 1975. 
So two divers, Robert Edwin and Peter Holmes, were on a dive about 394 feet down. They headed back to the dive bell and they noticed that there was a gas leak occurring. So the men moved to a deeper chamber that was attached to their bell because some of these do have like, you know, little escape thingies and safety features. Um, And their supervisors started feeding helium into the chamber to seal it off from the gas leak. However, the supervisor hadn't realized that the gauge in the chamber wasn't working. And so he sent too much helium into their chamber. Oh, God. So the pressure inside dropped to a depth of 650 feet and the temperature rose to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. (gasps) The two men were not able to breathe at that temperature. And after a few hours, they died of hyperthermia. So that one was terrible, too. They're all terrible. What is, is it hyperthermia? It was super hot. Is that hot. essentially like burning alive or no? They well, this one was called alive. like boiling undersea. That oh. was the title of the article that I read. So Okay. Okay. Um, it so there was no fire. It just got, the temperatures just got so fucking hot that yeah. they, their insides cooked a little bit. Yeah. So I've talked about all these tragic accidents and there's one that everyone survived. However, yay! So I thought I'd put that in here because we deserve to end this on a good note. Okay. So during the Stena Sea Spread accident in 1981, the umbilical cord of the diving bell got damaged and the bell wasn't able to get air or be pressurized. So, in order to prevent the divers from getting decompression sickness, the rescue team lowered a second dive bell to their depth and the men were moved from the broken bell into the new one. The transfer was successful and everyone lived. So I don't know. I think um, the second diving bell would have come in handy for a few of these. um, Yeah. Why wouldn't someone think like, oh, if this detaches, we're all going to die. Let's go ahead and put another one just in case. Yeah. I'm so curious as to maybe those rigs just didn't have it available to them. I don't know, guys. But I feel like it. I don't know. I don't want to just, I don't want to be that guy, but I feel like someone could have thought in advance, what can we do to make this a little bit safer? And I'm going to be putting a poll on Spotify. Um, You know, would you do this job? Would you be a saturation diver? Like they get paid a ton of money, look it up. And then after everything I've told you, would you do this job? Let me know. Email me. Let me know. I need. I don't think I would. But how much money? Like 1500 a day was like one of the averages. And it's like 1500 a day for 28 days. Do the math. I can, I can calculate. Hold on. Yeah, either make it 1000 or 2000 and that'd be easy for me to math it. But 1500 don't make fun of me, 42, guys. 42000 Oh, damn. I might just have to get my <laughs> diving gear on. <laughs> you know what? $42,000? we are go- we are going diving. And you have some diving 42,000 for how many days? 28. And how, how long do you, how many times do you do this throughout the year? Some people do like same amount on, same amount off. Some people just do like a few jobs. It depends. Sometimes if the job goes really wrong, you can be trapped down there for much longer. I did read some of that. Are you and still then, getting paid if you're trapped? I don't know. I, I would hope. Maybe you could get a lawsuit if you're trapped, you know? I don't know. But um, let me know if you do that job. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. That's making me even scared of diving. Why? Just the bins. You're not going to get the bins. You're not going to scary. But they do have the decompression chambers now that they put your body in after you get the bins. Some places don't have that, though. Like, for example, um, I think it was when I was in Aruba. Yeah, I dove in Aruba. I don't remember... One of the places they didn't have the little chambers on the island. So if you were to get the bins, they would have to fly you to a whole other island because there is no decompression chamber. I just feel like that's important. If you're going to dive somewhere, I feel like that's an important thing to know is accessible to you. Because, you know, death, pain, bubbles under your skin. (laughs) What do I know? At least it's not the immediate explosive At least you don't go boom. Yeah. Don't look it up. Don't look it up, you guys. Like, don't I'm look not it up. even joking. It looked, oh, this is, but I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it looked like fried chicken, kind of. What fried chicken are you eating? No, let me just, no, I'm, good. I'm not, I'm, good. I'm just going to glance it and see, like, squint your eyes a little okay. and see if it looks like fried chicken from a distance. I'm blind as shit. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it yeah, does. Yeah, thank you. Thank it's, you. Just to, I will never eat fried chicken until again. you focus, and then you're like, "Is Ooh. that fingers?" Ooh. Okay. I'm sorry. Well, any disasters you guys want me to talk about? Let me know. I want to take a know. break from. We need to do some fun things. Well, I'm doing the Thomas Edison one, and then because of who I am, I'll probably do like medical, some weird medical. <laughs> thing next i'm covering so previous episode we covered some child games paranormal stuff um which the content doesn't suck but the audio sucks but (laughs) next i think i'm gonna i'm gonna buy the bullet i'm gonna do it i'm gonna cover the ouija board oh my god i hate the ouija board i'm gonna cover the ouija board you can't talk about games you played as a child which i don't now that I'm an adult, I do not consider the Ouija board a game, even though that it was created as a game. I went into the Ouija board museum in Salem and there's little, there's like children's ones, like little Barbie Ouija boards, you name it. There's a Ouija board for everything. Can't wait. Can't wait. Someone was selling one on Facebook Marketplace the other day and a part of me wanted to buy it, but a part of me was like, who knows what they summoned with that, Brenna? Don't you dare. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But coming up next week, Ouija boards. Thanks Ouija for listening, boards. guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, follow us on Instagram at Mystery of Everything Pod. Um, that's our Instagram, I think. And then send Patreon. Us- we'll be making one. I promise. Uh, I'm gonna make it this weekend. Swear. And um, what else? Yeah, send us an email if you or a loved one have ever um been in a saturation diver at Mystery of Everything Pod at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>